0: right so i mean today we're doing amos and obadiah and obadiah is one chapter so we're not going to spend a whole session doing one chapter so we'll be doing two books probably until we get to the new testament with every session today we are in amos and um getting straight to it apart from apart from what is revealed in the book we know nothing about amos um, you know, there's no like uh, external sources or historical books that will tell us about who he is and who he was and who he did. So all we have is the book of Amos to tell us who Amos is. And um, going to chapter one, if you go to chapter one, verse one, the words of Amos, who was among the, the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel two years before the earthquake so as you can see Amos was around during the days of Uzziah so that makes him a contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah Uh, he was a shepherd during the time period that Hosea and Isaiah were in ministry as prophets and Amos is a shepherd from a village called Tekoa uh, in the southern kingdom of Judah right so I have uh, you can see on your screen I have the map here. So remember there's the nation of Israel and um after the reign of King Solomon the nation of Israel was split into two. It was divided into two for political reasons. And you have the southern kingdom and you have the northern kingdom. So if you can see my map here, the southern kingdom was called Judah and the southern kingdom is where the temple of where well, the temple was in Jerusalem, right? And then the Northern Kingdom was called Israel still. So sometimes uh, it might get confusing, but Israel sometimes might be referring to the whole nation of Israel. Sometimes it's just referring to the Northern Kingdom, depending on which time period it's in. Um, But I'll specify when it's just the Northern Kingdom and when it's the whole nation of Israel. And this graphic is really cool because you can see... Um, it shows you where each prophet that we read about in the prophet section is from, right? So you can see Jeremiah was from Anathoth over there. And today, and here's Isaiah and all these other prophets. And today we're looking at Amos. As you can see, he's not far from Judah. He's in the southern kingdom in Tekoa, right? And unlike most of the prophets that we read about in the Old Testament, Amos is not a prophet. He tells us himself in chapter 7 that he's a herdsman. And a dresser of sycamore figs. So basically, he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd and a farmer, right? He's a normal, everyday man. Um, He wasn't a professional prophet, but the Lord calls him to be a prophet to the northern kingdom, to Israel. So he goes up to Israel. He travels all the way from the southern kingdom to the northern kingdom um, in Israel to deliver the message that God has for the people. He's given a unique task by the Lord. So you see verse 1 mentioned that there was an earthquake. It was a major historical earthquake that happened in 765 BC. And the passage says the events of the book are happening two years before that. So that's 767 BC. That's how we date the book. So if you turn to verse 2, verse 2 of chapter 1. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers so amos's prophecy begins with judgment on israel's neighbors the foreign nations verse 3 thus says the lord for three transgressions of damascus and for four i will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed gilead with threshing sledges of iron so god judges the nation of damascus because they were guilty of cruelty in warfare against the nation of gilead the threshing sled is a picture of extreme violence, right? And and it's it's basically cruelty in war. Uh, verse 6. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So Gaza and the other cities of the Philistines are judged because of their slave trading. Uh, they were slave trading with Edom. So they are guilty because of the sin of slavery. And then verse 9. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So he talks about judgment against Tyre. They were also guilty of the same inhumane offense as Gaza. They were selling slaves to Edom. And in verse 13, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So the sin of the Ammonites was the viciousness and brutality of the attacks. They were guilty of cruelty in war for the sake of border expansion, right? All all because they wanted to conquer all the lands around them. They didn't even have pity for pregnant women. They would rip them open. Uh, that's how barbaric they were. And the sins of the nations were great, right? They were, They were very sinful. And the Lord hates it. You can see it in the poetic device being used here. So you can see the pattern for three transgressions and for four for the Ammonites, for three transgressions and for four, for Damascus, Tyre, Edom. It's similar to Proverbs. You know, in the book of Proverbs, when the Lord says uh, these six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him, right? It's always these six the Lord hates, seven are abomination. And then it lists the seven things like uh, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. These are all poetic devices used to emphasize how much God hates sin and sinful acts of the people. And here in Amos, three transgressions and for four, that emphasizes the extent of the sins of the people, right? Look how far they go. Look how deep the, the, the depravity and the wickedness of the people reaches to the extent that they sell other human beings made in the image of God as slaves. In war, they butcher each other into pieces and they rip the stomachs of pregnant women open. Um, the nations are completely wicked, right, and notice how notice how in this rebuke, Amos fully expects these heathen nations to conform to god 's standards right they have they have transgressed the law, but whose law have they transgressed it 's god 's law it 's Yahweh that they serve other gods, other false idols is no excuse it 's no defense. The God who will judge them for their sin doesn 't care when you stand before God. And you have to account for your sins. You won't say, oh, no, but I'm Hindu, right? Or I'm, I'm Muslim, or I believe in the ancestors, right? Everybody is under God's law. The Lord, right? It's, it's the Lord. It's Yahweh. He's the creator of the universe. And so his moral code is universal, and all people are subject to judgment in light of them. So we get to chapter 2 and amos is still prophesying so remember he's sent to prophesy um to bethel and samaria and there were synagogues at bethel and uh a place called dan right but bethel bethel was the main area and remember the na- since 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 the nation of israel split into the north and south for political reasons king jeroboam so uh, king jeroboam is the one who's ruling over the northern kingdom right he's got control over the northern kingdom but the problem for him was that the nation had one temple right everyone went to jerusalem for worship but jerusalem is in the southern kingdom so what jeroboam did was he stopped all pilgrimages to jerusalem and then he built two places of worship one at dan and one at bethel in fact bethel bethel means house of god but Jeroboam then set up idols in the synagogues. So he set up idols and um, and carvings and images. And people came to worship these idols at Bethel. And he set up golden calves in the temple, right? And we should all know golden calves are never a good sign. When people are worshiping golden calves, in Scripture something is terribly wrong with the people. In In addition to sacrificing to golden calves, jeroboam built shrines and he appointed priests from all kinds of people remember god had said if you're going to be a priest you must be from the tribe of levi so remember there's the 12 tribes of uh, of of israel um and the tribe of levi was the one from from where all the priests were supposed to come from if you were a descendant of the tribe of levi then you could you were eligible to be a priest but jeroboam appointed his own priests who were not levites so Jeroboam basically copied and perverted God's entire system of worship. Uh the holy days, the sacrifices, he invented his own holy days, right? His own days for uh um different sacrifices and feasts. Um and and worship was changed into a man-made system focused on worshiping golden calves. And on top of that, the city of Bethel became the place Became the place of worship rather than God's chosen city of Jerusalem. Because remember, the Israelites were supposed to make the journey, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem um, for certain feasts and festivals. But Jeroboam came and said, No, we've got Bethel, so that's where it's going to happen. Anything to keep the people from going to the southern kingdom. Now, picture the scene, right? We are in a synagogue. And Amos is bringing God's word to the people. He's preaching starting from what we see in chapter 1. Saying all of these oracles of judgment against the nations. And you would be there. Amen. Preach it brother. Praise the Lord. Uh, go deeper. right? Hallelujah to all you're saying right now. And then he gets to verse 1 of chapter 2. Verse 1 says, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kirioth, and Moab shall die amid, amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. It would be great because, uh, it'd be great. There would be shouting praise and dancing and rejoicing because those are your enemies. Right, God is finally going to judge our our enemies because they are always oppressing us, persecuting us, harassing us. So praise the Lord, our enemies are going down. All the other nations, God is going to bring them down. And you're listening there and enjoying the sermon. You're nodding your head. And then suddenly Amos says, verse 4, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. All of a sudden there's silence. Transgressions of Judah but that's our people, right? Those are Israelites. So what's going on? And then Amos says, "Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the stronghold of Jerusalem." So Judah and Jerusalem, that's the southern kingdom. And then Amos continues, "Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Verse 7. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profane. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So this would have been quite a shock to the initial hearers in the synagogue because God is also going to judge them. Now, now there's no more shouting, right? There's no more shouting and praising in that sermon. Now it's quiet. Maybe some people stand up and walk out of the synagogue, right? I'm not coming back here. They're too judgmental it would have been especially shocking to the people because in this period in history, there was incredible stability in the society. Right? Israel was incredibly secure and stable. Actually, in, bo- in both the Northern and the Southern Kingdom, there was political stability and huge economic prosperity. Right? Things were going well. I- imagine you turn on the news and... Imagine you watch the news and they report on good things. be like what there's no political scandals Uh, when they show stock market it's only green arrows everything is going up everything is going up except the price of petrol if only but everything is going well right even on the religious side in bethel uh, in bethel and dan and uh, it's gilgal places of worship were full right the religious system was doing well it's flourishing these places of worship are all doing well, they are making lots of money. The congregants, uh, the members of the synagogues are wealthy right they're wealthy, so the synagogues are making lots of cash. they're even creating new worship music uh, they're creating new music they're inventing new musical instruments. It seems to be a fruitful time There's a lot of creativity there's there's lots of things happening and flourishing in the land and now and now suddenly. They get told God is going to judge us, right? God says, Judah, you're going to be judged because you rejected the law, right? So, which is kind of simple. But when it comes to Israel, when it comes to the Northern kingdom, uh, where Amos is, God is saying they're going to be judged for a whole lot of things, for oppressing the poor. Uh, There's sexual immorality going on. They are profaning the worship of God. And so they're going to be judged. And that is one of the that is one of the, the themes in this book. The oppressive treatment of the weak and the vulnerable. They were selling off poor and needy people for goods. And they were taking advantage of the helpless. They were oppressing the poor. And the men were using women immorally. So, so drunk on their own economic success and intent on strengthening their financial position. The people lost the concept of caring for one another. Right And in their lifestyle, it was evident that Israel had forgotten God, and so God's going to judge them because of their oppression. and he uses graphic language turn to turn to chapter three. Chapter three, verse thirteen, verse thirteen, "Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. That on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars, the altars of Bethel. Remember, uh, uh, sorry, Bethel means house of God. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So you see the prosperity they have. They have their summer house and their winter house. They've got their house in Joburg and the one in Durban. Right? Never mind that they have two houses. Some of these houses are made out of ivory. And they were accumulating wealth by buying more and more property. Right? Massive mansions. They have tremendous decadent wealth. Now, wealth is not the issue. Remember that in the Old Covenant, one of the primary expressions of God's favor was through wealth. So God would give his people gold and precious stones, right? But the issue with this wealth is that it was ill-gotten gain. They got their wealth through oppressing and abusing the poor, uh, through abusing the weak and the needy. Um, Abraham and David were rich, right? Job was rich. Uh, In the new covenant, John and Mark, they were rich. And remember the story of the short man who climbed a tree, Zacchaeus? He gave away half of everything he owned and he was still rich afterwards. Right. Uh, God does not mind his people having money, but he does mind money having his people. And here the people were so greedy for money. They were so greedy for gain that they were willing to crush their neighbor to get it instead of loving their neighbor. And so Amos goes on to say, if you turn to chapter four. So in chapter four, he says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, uh, so he calls the women cows, cows of Bashan, and Bashan was rich pasture land with plenty of grass for grazing, right? Uh, who on the mountain? Was there? Who oppressed the poor, who crushed the needy, who say to your husband, Bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. So God swears by his own holiness, right, that these women are going to be taken captive. So this refers to when the Assyrians would later come and invade and conquer the northern kingdom and take the people away as exiles. And what the Assyrians would do when they took prisoners is they would tie them together using hooks that pierced the flesh so that they couldn't run away. So they would pierce hooks sometimes through the lip, Sometimes it would actually pierce, through, pierce you through the cheek. And the idea is if they tie a bunch of you together with fish hooks, you won't run away. Because if you try to pull away, it'll rip through your flesh, right? And then your mouth will be gazing or your um, your cheek would be right, wide open. And then people could visibly see that, okay, this is a runaway, you know, stop him. Um, also, it would be painful, obviously. So God is saying that you will be taken away with fish hooks. Right. And this verse is speaking of the wealthy women. And the Lord is calling the Lord is calling them cows because they were lazy and wealthy and fat. And they are oppressing the poor and the needy. And it's not good. And the picture we're to get so far is everything seems to be okay if you are in the upper middle class of society. Right? It's a time of prosperity and and political stability god must be favoring us he must be happy with us that's what the people think but that's not the case in fact god's judgment is coming upon them and what we can learn from that is do not put your confidence in economic status don't think i must be right with god because my bank balance is doing well or there is nothing wrong going uh, there's nothing going wrong in my life at the moment so i must be okay with god Right? You need to check how you're walking with the Lord and whether it's in holiness or not. In fact, remember the rich young ruler with Christ. Wealth is a huge obstacle to many people coming to Christ because life is good. I'm comfortable, right? And one of the main dangers in being comfortable in our Christianity is that over time, comfort tends to begin like uh, comfort, te- sorry, comfort, Tends to begin to feel like something that God or even the world owes us, right? It starts to feel like a right and not a privilege. What we once called luxury is now called a need. You need to have this type of clothing. You need this type of phone. Uh, you need to eat this kind of food and live in this kind of place. More and more we want things and, and securities and comforts. And there's a danger in that because um, we are not of this world. Right, we shouldn't look to the things of this world to 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 satisfy us and and to keep us. We should always keep in mind that we are exiles here. So, verse four, the Lord is being sarcastic, right? So, look at verse four, and it says, "Come to Bethel and transgress; to Gilgal, and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every every three days." Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free willings sorry, proclaim free will offerings, publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. See what God is saying? They love to sin and then come and perform their sacrifices. And they did them according to the law, right? They, they, they did their sacrifices according to what God had instructed in the book of Leviticus. They brought the sacrifices every morning, like the law said. They would pay their tithes, like the Lord said. Uh, They offered thanksgiving sacrifices with leaven, like the law said. And then they would tell everyone what they had done, right? What do the people do? They proclaim free will offerings. They publish them. They love to do so. It's interesting because it describes a lot of Christianity today. People think... If I'm doing well economically, then God's face is shining upon me. I've done something right. Right. And many churches focus solely on that. You walk into the church and uh, the church program will be filled with many testimonies. Right. I didn't have a car, but I started tithing and the Lord has blessed me with a Porsche, with a BM, with a Mercedes. Uh, I gave my bonus money to the church and now I have a new house in Bryanston. Uh, That is publishing what you are doing, right? I'm making it known all the good acts I do. I'm giving money. I'm giving offerings. I offer this many sacrifices. Uh, These are the people that I help financially. And when we do that, we violate the principle that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus said, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. That's in Matthew 6. I think it's Matthew 6 verse 2. And I don't want to paint everyone with the same brush. But I I think there are many sincere Christians who are in bad churches that do that. But the point remains that it's a system that is rotten and the Lord hates it. We see it here in Amos. We see it in the New Testament. God hates it. The people are hypocrites because they are not trying to honor God. Right? They're not trying to honor God and to have a right relationship with him. Yet, they perform public acts of obedience and worship only for the sake of public recognition. And Jesus criticized the Pharisees for this exact kind of behavior, which is doing the right things for the wrong reasons. The Israelites were oppressive of the poor and the weak. Religious, religious rituals in the absence of just and righteous treatment of others is disgusting to God justice and righteousness in the treatment of other people are actually key evidence of a right relationship with the lord because you cannot love god and hate your neighbor it's not possible uh, if anyone says i love god and hate his brother he's a liar for he does not love for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love god who he has not seen that's 1 john uh, uh, chapter 4 verse 20 it emphasizes how Worship cannot be disconnected from the heart, right? We worship God with all our being in all spheres of life, not just for a few hours on a Sunday. And then we get to chapter 5. So turn to chapter 5. Chapter 5 verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. When we looked at the book of lamentations, we, l- we learned that the book of lamentation is a book of mourning, right? It's what's called a dirge, a funeral dirge, or a song of mourning. And here Amos is giving a funeral song, right? It's a funeral song, a word of lamentation for Israel. Verse 2, fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel so the theme the theme of Amos is not oppression of the rich by the poor, right sorry, oppression of the poor by the rich. This is not a class warfare thing; there is no rich versus poor, and a lot of Christians use this book to justify. An unbiblical approach to social, social justice issues today, which is wrong. Because notice that all oppressed in Samaria who are being mistreated are also going to be destroyed in judgment by the Assyrians, right? The whole of the people are under God's judgment. And I want to point that out. All kinds of people in the land are guilty, rich, poor, middle class. And it's very important to note that because there is no liberation theology in this book right the message is not that god will liberate the oppressed from oppression it is repent and seek forgiveness from the lord right if they if there is an oppression that god is gonna is willing to deliver from it's the oppression of sin and we should all know sin is not exclusive to the wealthy right this is not a god who will judge the rich only over here but amos is holding God's people accountable for their ill treatment of others and their failure to fully embrace God's idea of justice. All right, he says the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left. This is, this is God not completely erasing or demolishing the nation but reducing it to a remnant. Right? Verse 20, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? and gloom with no brightness in it. So the false teaching at the time was that the day of the Lord, the day of judgment would be good for them. Right? That's what the the priests, the false priests and the false prophets were telling them. They were telling the people that the day of the Lord was something the people could look forward to. But Amos says to the people that day will be full with darkness and with gloom for them. Verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast and I take no delight in your solemn solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of the harps, of your harps, I will not listen. So God, God hates their cultic worship. He can't stand their sacrifices. He has had enough with their music ministry. Amos is condemning a system of false worship, which had become a business. And was counterfeit to the true worship that God required, so worship at Bethel Dan and Gilgal was corrupt, and we know that worship is a big deal, right? God takes his worship seriously. When we looked at the book of Exodus, God struck down and killed people because they did not worship him in the right way. right He told them, "Do this in worship of me," and when it disobeyed the slights of instructions, God would strike them down. God is completely holy, and so we should not dare to profane his worship. Um, So turn, turn with me quickly to the book of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says... Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So the author of Hebrews says we must offer acceptable worship to God. Acceptable worship means that in awe and reverence, we take into account God's holiness because our God is a consuming fire. Right? And so we must worship him with reverence and godly fear. As believers, we have received an unshakable kingdom. Are you worshiping the unshakable God or are you worshiping shakable possessions? Is your heart fixed on God? Is God your treasure or is the world your treasure? Right. Is God your security or is your retirement plan, your bank balance, your investment, your security? Are you an idolater? Is God your portion in this life or is the world your portion? Do you have do you stand with reverence and awe before the power and holiness of God who is a consuming fire to, uh, toward all sin or do you clothe yourself uh, and do you clothe yourself with righteousness of Christ so that the fire of God can be seen uh, as glory and not punishment? All right these are questions that are relevant for the Israelites at the time of Amos. But they're also relevant for you and me, right? And maybe you you want to know better how you can practically worship God. Well, look at the next chapter. Look at chapter 13 of Hebrews. Chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be, be held in honor among all. Let marriage, let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Uh, skip down to verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So as Christians, we often turn a blind eye to the suffering of others for more important work like praying or preaching and teaching god's word but the book of amos reminds us that even through even though prayer and teaching uh, uh, of god's word are vital in a believer's life they are of no effect they are shallow when we don't love and serve others in our lives right do you prioritize prayer over serving others You don't have to choose, right? Instead of choosing between the two, scripture teaches us that both are essential. God has called Christians not only to be in relationship with him, but to also be in relationship with one another. Don't be a believer who focuses more on the invisible God than on his visible creation, right? There is a middle ground, there's a center where both the physical and the spiritual needs of the the people matter to God. Um, So turning back to Amos, turn back to Amos chapter 6. So chapter 6, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. So a woe is a curse. Uh, Israel's covenant with the Lord didn't guarantee any special protection for them when they broke the covenant. Right. It actually meant that they would be held to a standard of obedience uh, and and would be to a higher standard of obedience. And they would be subject to more scrutiny and judgment. Right. And that's what's happening here. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of, of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. So it's a warning. Verse four. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and eat. Sorry, who, who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the store, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile and the revelry Of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Now it's fascinating how Western culture today we're obsessed with comfort. There's a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry. Uh, uh, The food culture is is one where we eat out of gluttony and not out of necessity. right? It's an obsession. And none of these things are sinful in and of themselves as long as they have their rightful place. Um... None of these things are sinful, right? Comfort, comfort is not sinful. But you get the idea that this is what these people were all about. The life of decadence and luxury. It's all about feeling good and having a life of ease. It's like watching these reality TV shows today, uh, housewives of Durban or Joburg. Um it's it's like following these these personalities on social media, right? Instagram influencers, vloggers, on YouTube, living the good life, flying from city to city, documenting their lifestyles, what they eat, what they wear, what they drive. They rejoice in having the soft life. And people watch them because they want that. right? They want that lifestyle of decadence and luxury, that life of comfort. And that's what's going on with the Israelites. They're living in happiness. They are living in happiness and comfort, yet there was so much immorality that they didn't even grieve over it. Right, They sin and it doesn't even bother them. And that's the issue. So don't be condemned about enjoying God's good gifts. right? But if what you live for is comfort, then it's an idol. If you hate anything that breaks your comfort zone, then it might be a sin issue in your life. And what you see in the world today is uh, in Africa, in uh, in the East, there's oppression and violence. There's wars and starvation. There's slavery in the Middle East and some parts of Asia, like China and Korea, where people are being bought and sold and mistreated. Christians in Mozambique are being targeted and killed by Islamic terrorists. In China, the church is underground, right? They're meeting in secret. Believers can't even be seen carrying a Bible. Some are are being beheaded and killed for their faith. Horrible things that have been going on for the past few years. Yet for the past few years, what has the West been concerned about, right? What has been the one major thing that uh, Europe and the USA have been fighting for and, 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 and you know, uh, clamoring over? It's gay marriage, it's transgenderism, sexual freedom, pronouns. You see how there's a complete disconnect. There are people being slaughtered for believing in Jesus Christ and worshiping him. There's violence and atrocities going on in the world. Hunger and starvation, poverty, sickness, disease. But but the biggest battle that is being fought in the West is, how can I get away from God's laws? How can I get away with sin? How can I be sexually immoral, right? How can I be comfortable with sin so that no one can make me feel bad about it? And that's the thing about the idol of comfort, Right. Of course, God is not going to allow that to continue. Judgment will come. Judgment will come not only externally. The Bible says that judgment will come internally as well. So just turn with me to Romans chapter 1 quickly. If you go to Romans 1 verse 20, 25, I think. So Romans 1 chapter 26, sorry, verse 26 says, For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and notice receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. To those who are sexually rebellious, the Bible says, will receive horrific judgment within themselves right you can't go against god's way and come out normal right the shame and the guilt is a judgment of god if you if you read the stats about the suicide rates among homosexuals and transgender people they are way higher for transgenders it's something like 50 to 60 percent also their life expectancy is a lot shorter right And have you noticed how there's just been this explosion of mental health issues, anxiety disorders, anxiety disorders, depression amongst that community? You bring ruin on yourself. That is what sin does. You feel shame and guilt. One of the ways to not feel shame and guilt is to be affirmed in your sin. And that is the language you hear today in the whole uh, LGBT issue, right? It's all about love. You are loving to a homosexual if you affirm their lifestyle. You are loving if you don't confront a couple having premarital sex. You are loving when you say a boy can be a girl and a girl can be a boy. But if you say anything against these sinful lifestyles, what are you? You are a bigot. You are hateful. You're a horrible human being. You will be silenced because you are reminding people of their sin. And people want to sin comfortably. They want to be comfortable. Especially in the West. These are not people who are starving and struggling. It's the richest people from the richest nation in all of history. All they care about is comfort, which is why the book of Amos is so relevant to us. Because it's easy to think we're doing great. Life is fantastic. But really, you're you're just one generation away from annihilation, from God's judgment. If you go to chapter 7 of Amos. Sorry, turn back to uh, Amos. Chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear his words. Verse 11. For thus thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from his land. So there's Bethel. uh, there's, There's the priest in Bethel, Amaziah. He sends a letter to the king saying, this Amos guy is causing a lot of problems with what he's saying, right? And you see that as well today. What are Christians? They are the problem, the the bigots, the hateful ones for proclaiming the truths of God. And the world will attempt to silence us because the world loves darkness and hates the light, right? That is what we learn in the New Testament. When we bring the light of God's word, it exposes sin and idolatry, the sin of an idolatry of those who love the darkness and they don't want that and so interestingly even here with Amos those who are trying to silence Christians appeal to government and political authority to do so right we don't like Amos Write uh, to the king to get rid of this guy he's causing trouble here he's telling us we're going to be judged so Amaziah says verse 12 and Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. Amaziah is telling Amos, go back home, get out of here. Remember, remember, Amos is from Judah. He's from the southern kingdom. So he's saying, go back home to Judah and prophesy there, Amos. The people don't want you here prophesying all these horrible, bad things. Verse 13, but never again prophesied Bethel for it is the king's sanctuary And it is a temple of the kingdom. Interesting that it's the king's sanctuary, right? No mention is made of this being God's sanctuary or God's temple. And today, today you find false prophets and false apostles saying, "This is my church, right? This is how we run things here. Do not speak against me. This is how I run my church." But really, who does the church belong to? It belongs to Christ. Right, False prophets are always men interested in building their own kingdom, their own empire, instead of God's. Verse 14, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people, to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Israel, of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with the measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Pretty hectic. Amos is like, I was a nobody. I'm not the son of a prophet. I was just a normal everyday man, a shepherd who looked after the sycamore figs. And the Lord came and spoke to me and sent me here. And what Amos is pretty much saying is I don't work for you, right? I don't answer to you because kings, uh, kings had their own prophets, right? They, they had their own professional prophets, And the danger there is that as a prophet, you made your living prophesying for the king. So job security meant say it meant saying what the king wants to hear. And then what happens is the king and the people are not told God's word because they are being told what they want to hear. And Amos is like, you don't pay my bills. I'm not on your payroll. You can't, you, can't, you can't tell me to stop prophesying because I don't work for you. In fact, you're telling me to stop prophesying. Here's what's going to happen to you. Your wife is going to become a prostitute in the city and all your children are going to die. And that is what the Lord says to you, which is hectic stuff. And so Amos is an example to you and me to remain faithful to the Lord and to what he has commanded in the face of pressure and temptation to compromise when we threatened or made out to be the villain, the hateful, the unloving, the unkind, the hypocritical Christian. And in this day and age, it could cause you to lose your job, right? Uh, It could cause you to lose your job, a job opportunity, a scholarship, a bursary. You could lose out on these things, but... Remember that in Christ, we never really lose, right? We never lose with the Lord ultimately. So stand firm on God's word. And then in chapter eight, he has these dreams and visions. And then go down to verse 11 it says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And really, that is the greatest judgment of all. When God removes his word from a society, a famine of the word of God means there's no hope of restoration or redemption or salvation. If there's a physical famine, if you can't eat food, but you have the word of God, you still have hope of eternal life. right? But you cannot be saved without the word of God. How are people saved if there's no word of God? Read read Romans 10. There is no other way to be saved, right? If God removes his word from a society, that society and and those people can have every blessing, every good thing in the world. It could be a society where there's zero poverty, right? Everybody owns a mansion and a yacht, but ultimately they have nothing because there's no salvation. Um so we close with chapter 9, turn to chapter 9. And if you've paid attention, Amos is heavily bent towards judgment. There's a lot of talk of judgment and what the people, what the Lord is judging the people for. But there's still hope. So if you go to chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnants of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the lord who does this so it's it's a hope uh it's a promise a hope of a booth or a tent of david right and where is this passage do you guys know where this passage is quoted from uh does anyone know if it's someone in the new testament you can put it in the comments i'll give you two seconds x uh, yes x Acts, Acts chapter 15 so it's yeah. turned me Turn with me there quickly, guys. It's the last time we visit visited the New Testament. So if you go to Acts chapter 15. And you go down to verse 13. Um, so Acts, uh, Acts 15 is the Jerusalem council. And the Jerusalem council was called together because the church, the early church, when it was formed, it was Jewish. Remember, Jesus was a Jew, the apostles were Jews, and that's how the church started, right? It started in Jerusalem, and then the church grew and spread as the gospel spread to other nations to include the Gentiles. So before it was all Jews, but now Gentiles, Gentiles are getting saved. And they are and they start to think, okay, what are we going to what are we going to do about this? Gentiles are getting saved. Must they get circumcised like a Jew? Must they start to eat certain foods like a Jew? What must happen? How do we relate to the Gentiles? And so it's a huge problem for the church. And the book of uh, Galatians deals a lot with it. So they call this council and Peter and Paul are there. And interestingly, James, James is the head of the council, right? Which represents a problem for Roman Catholics, because if Peter is the first bishop or the first head of the church, then why why is James leading the whole show? But anyways, we'll debate that some other times. James is leading the council. And they talk about the issue of Jew and Gentile. And verse thirteen, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, so remember Simeon is Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take to take from them a people for his for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, and then James goes quotes uh, Amos verse 16 after this i will return and i will rebuild the tent of david that has fallen i will rebuild its ruins and i will restore it that the remnants of mankind may seek the lord and all the gentiles who are called by my name the, uh, says the lord who makes these things known from of old so that is amazing james says the gentiles coming in all the nations being added to the church is the restoration of the house of david and in the in in second samuel chapter 7, we have this link between a tent or a booth and the temple. Remember, King David wanted to build the Lord a temple and the Lord says, no, I will build you a temple. So, you have a link between uh, the tent or a booth and the temple. The church is the temple of the Lord. So, to summarize it quickly, you and I are living in the time of the restoration of the house of David and who is the real David? Who, who is the true king? Who is the true David? It's Jesus Christ. Um, he is the true king of Israel. right? Um, okay, we only have a few minutes. So we're going to stop there with the book of Amos. Are there any questions? Okay, let's look at Ovidiah quickly. I only need five minutes. Sorry, guys, we will go a bit over time. If you need to drop off, please do. But... Uh, please bear with me it's only one chapter right Uh, so it's obadiah and this book is interesting because we have it in our bibles but it doesn't deal with the nation of israel it has to do with the pagan nation of edom so look at verse one the vision of obadiah that says the lord concerning so that says the lord god concerning edom and it's an oracle of judgment on edom why are they being judged look at verse 10 Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, so Jacob is the nation of Israel. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Verse 14, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitive. Do not hand over his survivors in the the day of distress for the lord, for the day of the lord is near upon all the nations as you have done it shall be done to you your deed shall return to you on your own head so the lord is saying when jacob your brother was being attacked you were rejoicing and we also know from psalm 137 that the edomites were rejoicing when jerusalem was being destroyed by the babylonians in 586 and what the edom what the edomites would do when the Israelites were under attack and they were being besieged by the, by the Babylonians, some of the Israelites would manage to escape, right? They escaped the attack from the Babylonians and then they fled. They would run away. And what the Edomites would do is they would stand on the perimeter of, of uh, Jerusalem and they would actually capture the fugitives. And then they take them back into Israel to the Babylonians. And then obviously the Babylonians would kill them. And the Edomites have been rejoicing over the judgment that the Jews were receiving. They were gloating, they were boasting, they were mocking the Israelites and insulting them and making fun of their situation. So God says he's going to judge them. In verse 15, it says, As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. And that's the law of uh, retaliation, right? An eye for an eye. Uh, So God's judgment is always fair. And in verse 16, For as you have drunk on my holy hill, sorry, on my holy mountain, So all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So there's this picture in scripture where drinking is a metaphor. Rather, it's a symbol of God's judgment. Think of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, where he's like, if it is possible, then let this cup pass from me. But it's not possible. And Christ had to drink the cup. Even in the book of Revelation, there's a cup of God's wrath being poured out. So... The book of uh, Obadiah seems very straightforward at first. It's a judgment on the nation of Edom. But Edom is symbolic of all the nations. So it's God proclaiming judgment on all of the nations. And he he also mentions the, the, the nations towards the end. So all of God's enemies will be judged. So all of this seems simple, but it's quite significant, especially when you look into the history of Edom. Where does Edom come from? right? The Edomite people are a descendant of Esau. So, uh, Edom, even the word Edom means the color red. If you remember Esau's skin was described as being reddish. Um, and you guys remember Esau, right? As in Jacob and Esau. So Jacob's twin brother, uh, Isaac's sons. We had the story of Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. And, uh, Jacob was a sneaky brother who tricked him into it. And remember, God had said, even before they were born, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And if you go back to Genesis 3, where it speaks of the two seeds, there's a seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman represents the godly, uh, the godly line of humanity through which we will get the Messiah. And there's a seed of the serpent, and that represents the satanic line. So seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, Jacob, Esau. Jacob becomes Israel, right? The nation of Israel comes from Jacob, uh, is descended from Jacob, which is the godly line. And then Esau becomes Edom, which is the satanic line. So the Edomites are descendants of Esau. And that's why God says to the Edomites, the violence you have done against your brother, Jacob. One of uh, out of the line of Jacob will come Christ, the savior. Whereas Edom, it's always they're always just causing problems for God's people. Even when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, they wanted to travel through their land and the Edomites refused. They fought with them, so they had to go around. And this this is not some random pagan nation, right? It is the brother. They are family. And yet there's so much hatred to the point where they rejoice when their brothers are being slaughtered and their sisters are being raped. And this hatred continues down the generations. Uh, Do you know anyone who will come out of the line of Edom at the time of Christ? It's Herod, King Herod. So you've read about King Herod in the Gospels, right? Uh, Edom is later known as Edomia. And King Herod was an uh, Edomian. And what does Herod try to do with Jesus? He tries to kill him, but he's not able to kill the seed of the woman. And in the end, he dies and his kingdom dies too. So if you're a Christian, then what nation are you? You are an Israelite. You are a descendant of Abraham. You are true Israel. That's what we are told in the New Testament. And in the end, the nations, which are non-believers, uh, all of those in the, the seed of the serpents, are going to be judged and destroyed by God. right? Um, and then verse 21 is a foreshadowing of Christ and his church. These saviors that it speaks of are the apostles of Christ, ministers of the word, uh, and especially in these days, preachers of the gospel. So that's also a quick overview of um, Obadiah. Are there any questions or comments?